Welcome to the lecture on putting well-being and prosperity first. What I want to talk about is how prosperity and well-being matter. They're more than simple economics or wealth. These are the measures by which we see ourselves and those who we care about doing well and being well. They represent a sense of continuity just today, but also across multiple generations. It links us to our ancestors and it gives us a sense of belonging. Unfortunately, somewhere along the road to today's economy, we've lost our way because we've confabulated prosperity and well-being with ideas of consumerism, of hierarchy, of accumulation. And what we've done is we've actually ignored the constraints that the planet has for us and all of those limitations. In a recent uh, Gresham annual lecture, the Lord Mayor's annual lecture, there was a panel looking at building back better. And it was about the city's role in a green and uh, green-led economic recovery. And Mark Carney and others talked about the importance of green finance linked to climate and nature-based solutions, changing the direction of our economies. But what I would like to do is to really uh, talk about the additional element, which is to build in the links between those kinds of financial investments and how we can design an economy that is with communities and governments working together to build not only social well-being, but also prosperity. They do go hand in hand, prosperity and well-being. Um, but prosperity isn't just simply wealth plus well-being. To prosper is to understand the meaningfulness of our lives in terms of the quality of our lives and our relationships, about the resilience of communities, the sense of individual and collective meaning. As Prince Charles said in his preface to Tim Jackson's book, The um, Prosperity Without Growth, he talked about tackling the impact of consumerism, um, which currently depends on this unfettered exploitation of the extraordinary beauty of nature, and really failing to understand and respect the limits that the planet has for us. Now, the concept of the well-being economy as an economy which pursues human and ecological well-being instead of just material growth is really gaining support. And what we can see around the world, certainly since 2018, is a policy debate, and certainly amongst many national governments, about ways that we can achieve this. So looking for guiding principles to design development policies that will also create change and allow us to assess progress. So although the well-being economy shares some tenets with the concept of degrowth, what the well-being economy does is to be more adaptable to different cultural and economic contexts. And I think because of its forward-looking language, it's really penetrating very successfully into a lot of policy processes and national legislation. And that's really what we're after. So in this paper, I'm going to be looking at some of the key features of the well-being economy and show how it relates not only to the postmodern societies, but also to traditional indigenous peoples. And I'm going to be talking about the very practical implementation and the capacity that it has to help us share values. So what I'm arguing for is that this is the framework that is actually going to allow us to underpin well-being and prosperity in the post-COVID world. So when we think about building pathways to prosperity, we have to consider many things. Prosperity itself is poorly articulated in both theoretical and operational terms. When you compare it, for example, to resilience and quality of life and in some senses well-being. So we have got indices of prosperity. For example, we started out with the World Bank which is premised on poverty reduction, income inequality and shared prosperity. They're looking at the growth in the income or the consumption of the bottom 40% of the population in a country. But there are broader measures which are perhaps better than this narrow focus. Uh, for example, the Human Development Index, which measures longevity, education and income. There's also the Legatum Prosperity Index, which measures economic quality, business environment, governance, personal freedom, social capital, safety and security, education, health, and the natural environment. And then there are a couple of other ones, uh, for example, the Better Life Index, the Social Progress Index, but these are only available for a smaller number of countries. Um, in fact, the, the Human Development Index and the Legatum have quite a lot in common. But what a lot of the studies of prosperity have 
in common is that they're dominated by measures which look at prosperity and well-being through the nation's economic productivity and employment and things like household income. So they're looking for this universal definition, um, just as in well-being, for example, as a state of individual happiness, life satisfaction, absence of anxiety, a sort of feeling that life is worthwhile. But the focus has really been on establishing at the cross-cultural level studies that will create equivalence, will measure equivalence of well-being, of happiness and life satisfaction. And what that has, what that has meant is that the different contexts uh, that exist, the ways in which people are experiencing life, the meaning of their lives, the value and the relevance of the concepts to different communities is lost. So prosperity is sometimes represented as the polar opposite of poverty. And that if we're going to design pathways, it's just about bringing people out of poverty. But it is much more than that, because by framing it around poverty, we're just concern, concerning ourselves with material issues. Um, and it's about you know, assets and so on. What we would like to do is to design pathways to prosperity and well-being that talk about the lives of people where we use evidence and knowledge and have this much more holistic and contextual outcome around shared prosperity. So reimagined futures, for example, towards the sustainable development agenda. So it's going to be highly complex. It's going to be highly politicized. New forms of dialogue within, between societies um, and conversations about whose vision of prosperity is going to be put into action and the kind of constraints and trade-offs that need to be negotiated. So a critical question then at the very beginning is, in whose hands should this process of knowledge production lie? Now, at the Institute for Global Prosperity at University College London, where I also work, we argue that transformative action for shared prosperity and well-being requires a new, more transparent and accountable way of putting knowledge together. We want knowledge that can bridge the gap between expert-led theories and concepts and that diverse, culturally specific meaning that, that reflects the living experience. So we would like to do something about that by creating measurement frameworks that are developed from a knowledge and understanding about prosperity as a lived experience in ways that allow for action on the ground and meaningfully include even the marginalized communities. So reaching out and giving a voice to people who essentially have rarely had that opportunity. This is particularly important, for example, in refugee camps, in informal settlements around urban areas, and certainly in the rural areas, where quite often the urban poor, the rural poor, suffer disproportionate burdens of environmental and socioeconomic um, inequalities. And they're often excluded from this macro-level visioning um, and policies. So, put in a nutshell, the Institute for Global Prosperity's Prosperity Index is different because we are setting out a stage that says we want to have a participatory approach. We want to measure prosperity in communities around the world. And what we've done is we've adopted an innovative process of knowledge co-creation, co-production with communities. And we use a context-specific framework for conceptualizing what prosperity means to those communities. Now, this kind of co-production method is well established in other fields in international development, humanitarian and resilience building research. But it's not really been used, for example, in traditional societies, in informal settlement dwellers, um, where their voice is, is very important. And although it's a very unusual way to operate, it actually brings a deep engagement with all the different perspectives that we will need to create a knowledge base and to build the pathways towards prosperity. What we see then is it's, it kind of rests on an epistemology of knowing that challenges to this unitary vision that we've had before um, is not going to serve us well. And instead, it embraces knowledge production that comes out of confrontation, juxtaposition of different views, trying to work out and see how we can take forward a worldview that will blend and bring many of these views together. So co-production really marks a point of departure from the sort of more conventional expert-led top-down approach. Um, and it's based on this appreciation of community and individual citizens' views, their knowledge, experiences, preferences and needs. 
And it definitely looks at how communities can contribute to the improved outcomes rather than just sitting as bystanders. So these achievable outcomes need to be solutions that are practical and will work. And it has to also target everyone. You know, the welfare of indigenous peoples, the, the urban poor, refugees, everyone. So the relevance and utility of this co-produced knowledge goes way beyond the design and provision of just basic services, you know, making sure there are toilets, clean water and so on. It really means that we're bringing community knowledge into the design and the provision of those services, but more importantly, contributing to the realities that people are aspiring to. So this is about creating a space of inclusion where marginalised and others can really have their voice put into a central role to envisage alternative and, we hope, more just futures. I now want to move on to an actual example to give you an idea of what it looks like to undertake well-being research. And I'm going to look specifically at how we've been collecting and developing what's called the Prosperity Index in Dar es Salaam. The recent study was undertaken by a colleague of mine, Saffron Woodcock, and she's very, very keen to bring participation right to the fore. Dar es Salaam is one of the main commercial hubs in East Africa. It's the cosmopolitan hub of Tanzania and is one of Africa's fastest growing urban centres. It's driven by an influx of residents from rural and suburban areas. And today it has an estimated population of over five and a half million people and it's got an average growth rate of nearly 6%. So what we think is that by 2030, the population is going to be close enough to 10 million people. So it will be a mega city stand, uh, by any means. Now, although urban growth in Dar es Salaam provides a lot of economic opportunities for residents, this rapid population growth has really outstretched the capacity of the city to provide adequate and affordable housing and all the other requisite services. As a result, about 70% of the population lives in informal or unplanned settlements. So with the rate of growth as it is, these have also become uh, a focus for what's happening around average urban growth rates because in many cases, 70% of the population is showing a two times the average growth rate in the city. Of course, when COVID hit, then we saw that these were some of the most hazardous locations with people living in them being very closely packed together. Now, this is not a city that's uncommon in terms of its setting in the rest of Africa. And other nations have done things such as just simply bulldoze areas, hoping, in fact, that people will then go back to rural or to the, to the other areas of the country. But the quickest solution has not been the case in um, Dar es Salaam. Instead, people have stayed. But because of that, we've seen a real uh, pressure for people to take account of the way in which they live. Now, the work in Dar es Salaam is, is interesting because it's really looking at this concept of Maishabora. This is a Swahili word that means, to all intents and purposes, prosperity. And the top items, the top priority items that were identified by the community were good settlements and environment, housing, health, social services, safety and security, good infrastructure and livelihoods. There was also a recognition that community involvement was very important with lots of community activities, job opportunities, business and entrepreneurship, all in that local area. Interestingly, fines and penalties were also seen as being important um, and mobilizing information and in empowering local leaders to tackle crime directly. And there was also a discussion around freedoms and rights, but crucially, throughout all of this, it was about relationships. When we move on to sort of building the model itself, we use data from community-led discussions to then start to design pathways to prosperity. And a measure of prosperity is, first of all, led from these discussions into understanding what matters, then building a model of the causalities and the interactions, then measuring the areas that matter most, undertaking surveys to give more in-depth evidence, and eventually co-producing a measure or a prosperity index, which can be used then as the basis for decision-making with communities, stakeholders and governments. Now, prosperity in Dar es Salaam um, obviously threw up two types of things. One were obstacles 
and the other were opportunities. Some of the major obstacles, of course, included lack of education, low income, lack of autonomy, tenancy life, lack of opportunities, of capital, of business education, um, money management experience, people not being able to send their children to school, capital for business, laziness, uh, the high cost of living, fines for not paying bills and having a dependent family. On the other hand, there was a lot around opportunities. So, for example, um, community action and problem solving was seen as very important. Employment in local industries, hard work and effort, personal agency, being able to save money and getting support from family with the ability to improve housing. What's fascinating is that these features echo many of those of the communities around the world, from London to Lebanon to Nairobi, but they each have their own contextual relevance. The challenge is to determine whether a global prosperity index can be developed that simultaneously reflects the differences and similarities amongst communities. What is important for Maishabora is gender differences. What is clear and amply demonstrated is that gender makes a difference. For example, in Dar, women and men's top 10 priorities were broadly the same, but they had very different orderings. Women identified good settlement environments, livelihoods, urban and city infrastructure, government leadership, policy, all of these were seen to be extremely important. But also flood risk, because many of these settlements are close to areas which could be swept away. Housing status, roads, income generating activities, home ownership and health. Men, on the other hand, started to look at livelihoods, their own health, the way that government and leadership was set up, um, income generating activities and trying to meet the basic needs. Interestingly, though, also um, entrepreneurial activities and training. So basic understanding of how to get a job. And then, of course, good housing and shelters. So these are important. As we move out, though, from that setting and we start to go into other areas, for example, in the Mal Forest, where I work, we can also see a very, uh, a very interesting development, which is the idea of when you're working with people who are illiterate or non-literate, I should say, they have a sense of being able to embody it in, a, in an icon. And what you can see in the slide are two icons, one from the Nandi and the Kalenjin and the other from the Maasai. On the left-hand side, we see that they've chosen to portray prosperity in the picture of a calabash, a calabash which is carrying milk, highly important for development, for safety, for security, but for health. And right in the middle, and most important, is community. But then you see, of course, education, underpinning leadership, and environment and infrastructure there as the supporting functions, with health being fed in through the calabash. On the other side with the Maasai, we see that the warrior's um, shield is what is being used. And here again, we see that community is the backdrop against which education, health, leadership, again, infrastructure and environment all appear. So although the content is very similar, the proportion of importance and, and the way in which they rank these are very important, but also the way in which they convey the concept of prosperity also takes on, I think, a very, a very good and interesting iconography. So can we move elsewhere? Well, yes, in London, where there's been a tremendous amount of work, we can see that the IGP team has co-produced a prosperity index. There's even a London Prosperity Board, which has been based on specifically commissioned household survey data. This compares local experiences to the average for the greater London. Now, it's got five domains, 15 subdomains. Uh, it's got 32 headline indicators, which come from 67 metrics. And these are all constructed from household survey data. Some are from secondary sources. But the interesting thing is that the main elements are very similar to the ones that we saw before with the two um, icons from the tribes. We see foundations of prosperity, opportunities and aspirations, power of voice and influence, belonging, identities and culture, health and health environment. So the choice of icon here was a series of overlapping petals, but the constituent parts are very similar. So let's move on then from prosperity, where you can see a lot of these issues are very intertwined and they, they all reach into an individual and also a community 
aspiring for prosperity. So now let's think about what is well-being. So well-being itself is something that is widely talked about. Um, and often in, in the case of um, individual well-being, we've, we have sort of two types. We have hedonic or subjective well-being. And this is very much about the cognitive and effective evaluations of one's life. It's usually operationalized through something called subjective well-being. It includes positive effect, negative effect, life satisfaction. Um, and it is widely used So, and, and is being promoted. There's also a second type, which is called eudaimonic. Um, and this, this kind of well-being concerns the psychological and the social qualities. So these are the things that make life worth living, focusing on fulfillment of human potential, psychosocial skills, a meaningful life, self-actualization. So these dimensions have autonomy, personal growth, self-acceptance, purpose in life, environmental mastery, and a kind of positive, positive relationships that people have. But what we're really interested in is societal well-being. Unfortunately, there is no consensus about the conceptualization and the measurement of societal well-being. So different organizations and authors across all the various fields have been writing about this and trying to find a way and to create composite indicators in order to measure um, progress against valuable goals and really to inform ourselves about meaningful cross-country comparison. And here is the real problem. If we move from GDP to a well-being economy, we really have to think about A, what we're leaving and what we're going to take with us. Now, the, the thing about uh, gross domestic product is that it's about the total monetary value of all the finished goods and services produced within a country's borders at a particular time. What, he, what we know is that it fails to account for the positive or negative effects created in that process of production and development. Um, the things that kind of are a challenge to a thriving society and planet at this moment. Now, around the world, we have governments moving beyond gross domestic product, and they're beginning to embrace new metrics of progress. These range from the Sustainable Development Goals to national well-being indicators. Now, this movement is significant because it moves beyond the focus on means, i.e. economic growth, to a focus on the achievement of ends, in other words, our collective well-being. And this is very, very important. So this shift in thinking is, is really important because we have to realize we're at the beginning. It, it is not a fully fleshed out system just waiting for adoption. We're still trying to adjust, to think about what comes in from different contexts, to see, in, in a sense, how we witness progress and development around the world and how that might influence what we think regarding well-being. So instead of looking at um, uh, progress in terms of GDP or some kind of average uh, income level to evaluate progress, we want to really shift away to look at the quality of life and collective well-being. Now, this shift in thinking comes from this recognition that well-being is much more than just money, um, and it's really determining the quality of our lives and relationships. So, of course, when we look at GDP and we see um, announcements, for example, about uh, countries raising millions out of poverty, of course, that has been a major driver. But the consequences are that that increase in wealth has not led to a distribution such that we have people with an average um, income of about, let's say, £50,000 per year, and at the same time, we have nearly half of humanity still living on less than $5 a day. And in a sense, it's nonsensical to go forward with that kind of reasoning that we're actually creating progress that is good for all. So we really need to think about uniting people's needs. So our current economic system um, doesn't really pay good regard to lots of things that have really turned up during the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, the, the pandemic has exposed many, many imbalances, as we've discussed. So economic inequalities have skyrocketed during the pandemic, with billionaires sometimes recording record increases in wealth, whilst billions struggle to get by on sort of government support schemes. Now, the injustice of the current economic system is leading us towards even more increasing levels of insecurity, of anger, despair, loneliness, 
And this is really resulting in a lot of social unrest and distrust in governments. So as we just put dangers of climate change and biodiversity and all these other things on top of that, it means that our collective hesitation to tackle some of the crises head on comes from a fear of the negative impacts from the actions that they will have on the economy. But the economy is just a word we use to describe the way that we produce and provide for one another. And we can change that. We can definitely think about the way that we use the planet's resources and think again around the world what it would take to move ourselves with a sort of clarity of vision, coordinated effort, to move ourselves to an economy that promotes human flourishing on a healthy planet. Now, all around the world, we are seeing policymakers and governments embracing the vision of a well-being economy. Albeit small countries, we've got countries like New Zealand, Finland, Wales, Iceland and Scotland, and they have formed the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership. This is to support one another and to really try to build economies that put well-being of the people at, uh, and the planet first. But the point about this movement is not constrained just to the north, with many of the most innovative approaches coming actually from the global south, from cities and from really basically people participating uh, in a very different way. So when we start to unite needs, we can think very much around what are the tenets that we want to that we really want to capture. In the previous slide, there was a picture of a, la a person dragging a very large sack of money, and, and another person with just asking about getting enough money just to buy groceries. And the question is, where do we sit ourselves in all of that? But if we turn that upside down and we start to think about the tenets, the ultimate shape and structure of well-being economies we can see that we need some other things in our bag. So let me just run through five of them. Um, and I think these will give you an idea of where we're going in this conversation. So the first one we want to look at is dignity, where we say that everyone has enough to live in comfort, safety and happiness. When we think about nature, we think about a restored and safe natural world for all life. We think about connection, a sense of belonging and institutions that serve the common good. We also think about fairness, where sense in, essentially we're talking about justice in all its dimensions, being at the heart of economic systems, and the gap between the richest and poorest is greatly reduced. And finally, we think about participation, where citizens are actively engaged in the communities and in locally rooted economies. What we actually understand, though, is that the well-being economy movement needs to go beyond just fixing, healing and redistributing to actually building an economic system that gets it right first time. So it's about co-creating through these participatory processes. And in that way, we can actually envisage a better world together. It's all very well, though, looking outside of ourselves because in a sense, we can, we can put the blame on someone else. But if we want to be part of this, then we have to look inside ourselves. And it's at this moment that we really have to sort of reconcile how we are living in our own way. And I talk about breaking our addictions, and there are two in particular, hierarchy and accumulation. The challenge that we have is that we've got used to essentially sitting within a system, where hierarchy, in a sense, protects us potentially, but at the same time, we're also accumulating. So think of yourselves. Um, you're, you're saving up, perhaps you've got a pension, you've got a little nest egg, maybe for your children, you want to make sure that there's maybe some land for them. And this idea is to um, bring um, goods into the next generation by accumulating. But by accumulating, in a sense, we're really breaking the basic tenet of making sure that there is um, much more through the participatory process of sharing. So it's a shared prosperity, it's a shared economy. Um, so in a sense, a lot of the barriers to, towards moving in the direction of the well-being economy lie within ourselves. And managing and engaging the economy to ensure dignity and fairness of all means that we have to recognize that. Um, in fact, the measure of our own success is not wealth, but well-being. 
Now, many people have written about this, and there are a couple I just want to bring your attention to. Uh, one is Tim Jackson, who I'm sure some of you will have heard of. He's written a book called Prosperity Without Growth. And the second is Lorenzo Fioramonti. Now, I'd like just to speak a little bit about um, Lorenzo. He's a, he's a great academic. He's worked in the Global South. He's also in Italy. And most importantly, he's served in the government at successive times and, and is really also a member of parliament. He worries about his constituents. So he understands the language. But most importantly, his books, which have all been translated, uh, use real life examples. And what he does is he sort of lays bare society's perverse obsession with economic growth. And what he shows is its flaws, the paradoxes and the inconsistencies. And he basically points out that the pursuit of growth results in more losses than gains in damage, inequalities and conflicts. Tim Jackson's book, interestingly, started out with a question mark. So prosperity without growth, sort of question mark. Um, it became a landmark publication. It's in his second, uh, his second edition. But it's interesting that uh, when it first came out, the sponsor, I think the UK government, wasn't so keen on it. But it had real international appeal and it has soon become popular all around the world. When it was presented at the UN in 2013, the Ecuadorian minister asked if the idea of you know, prosperity without growth was only for countries that had already grown. Because as we shall see, his own country has something called Buen Vivir, and we'll, we'll come to that because it's very, very much an idea about solidarity in terms of the change in the growth model. So these books, but there are many others, really start to open up the dialogue about where our current models have brought us and how this is at odds with the fragile ecology of the planet that we're facing and the vulnerabilities of millions of people. Now, we're not starting from scratch, even though we may not have a well-formulated framework, what we have are many ideas that have been worked through in different parts of the world. So in thinking about our strategies, we can pull in ideas. So we start out, for example, with the circular economy. Now, the circular bioeconomy, as I call it, is about transforming our production and consumption patterns to redesign, to reuse, to rethink uh, all of the products that we have in our lives and really to design out waste and pollution. So there are many primary ways to do that. And I'm sure we could have a whole lecture just on, on the circular economy. But that's not all that we need. There's ideas around community wealth building. So identifying anchor uh, uh, institutions with strong linkages to the local economy, helping people really to um, pull together and foster a bottom-up inclusive development. So, for example, people may be buying land together to develop it, to think about living there, to putting their livelihoods there, but without any intention to sell into the future. I think these are captured beautifully in the cartoons by uh, Janelle Oris. So this idea that um, you have no intention of selling it, so it doesn't matter how much you contributed front up, you're actually all part of a community. We have regenerative economy, um, I think very well captured in the idea of regenerative agriculture, which focuses on building an economy that mimics nature by regenerating the social and ecological assets that we need. The economic democracy, this ensures a sort of ec um, an economic, uh, uh, an equitable distribution of economic power through democratic management of the economy. So we do that through policy, social enterprise and community wealth management. The donut economics, uh, which Kate Roworth has developed, where we make sure that we've got the, the, the necessary social foundations as well as respecting planetary limits. Common good economy, which evaluates business success not by profits, but rather by their contribution to the common good. And it aligns with values of dignity, social justice, environmental sustainability and transparency. Um, the solidarity economy, which promotes the expansion of economic activities and behaviours that are based on principles of reciprocity, cooperation and solidarity. Um, the core economy, uh, this recognises central importance of economic activities that occur amongst families, friends and communities. They're non-monetized, they're driven by values of love, empathy, responsibility and care. And then finally, the, founda the foundational economy. And this advocates the use of 
public policy to secure the supply of basic goods and services to all people. Now, when we think about those strategies, we still need to have a design, and there are primarily seven design principles of the well-being economy. What we, what we think about is how do we shape the economy in such a way that we can not just be correcting market failures, but where we're actually going to proactively foster activities and behaviours that are important for our well-being. So we don't want to keep on having small shifts and then fixing. We want to see where we actually need to step to. So we need to enter into a kind of new territory to understand who's there, the existing actors, their actions and behaviours and institutions, and see how we can align those into a well-being vision with its goals. Of course, we're going to have to gather new evidence. We're going to have to really think about this. But imagine that we, are, we really are able to pull these together. Now, the seven, the seven principles, goal-orientated. So we want to promote the well-being of people and planet. Contextual. There is no one size that fits all. We're all embedded in local values, culture, context and objectives. Experimental. We certainly don't have all the answers. So the, the processes that we put in place really encourage this sort of continuous learning, the updating, the experimentation. And this is what's going to foster well-being. Participatory. This is absolutely fundamental. The well-being economy is going to be created through a lot of people engaging in open, creative and transparent processes. So we want to have diverse communities meaningfully engaging and contributing throughout. Strengths-based. Well, communities do have strengths and we need to focus on those and bring out the positive aspirations rather than purely mitigating always negative outcomes. Um, we need to have holistic design principles. And finally, we need to be evidence-based without a doubt. This brings us to what would happen at a local level, at a community level, and it's really understanding what matters. To do this, it's important to identify trusted community institutions or leaders who can actually take the conversations forward. And alongside of that, we need to train policymakers to undertake these open, co-creative policy design processes. They don't come naturally to some people. Because what drives this is when the community is asking powerful questions that support the community's need to identify the positive vision for the future, rather than just simply focusing on existing problems or challenges. You know, it's like we have a lot of waste on the side of the road. Oh, this is causing a health problem and we need to fix it. Well, actually, we need to go up the line and see precisely where that waste is coming from. We need to also ensure considerations of both um, the current and the long term. So what do we need to do to ensure the future is secured? But at the same time, not locked down in terms of wealth and assets being actually captured by a very small proportion of the population. So how can we create that flow, not only of people, but also of wealth and resources? We need to ask questions on uh, what matters for personal well-being, community well-being and so on, and the environment, and ask questions to follow up on outcomes and the values underpinning that. And ultimately, we need to identify the core values in a community that relate to these priorities and that, that, that can really act as guiding principles to the policy design process. So let's just think about some different types of well-being. In Kenya, we have a number of uh, indigenous peoples that have very, very well articulated well-being processes. They're often termed cultural, traditional, but actually, if we look at them in detail, we can see that even though they are well understood by the communities, they're often poorly articulated when it comes to community-led processes going up the chain. So they're typically um, to do with ceremonies of age as people pass through the different stages. And for example, at the moment, there's a large and important cultural ceremony underway where two sides of the current age class, the right and the left hand, come together. And there are vital ceremonies that mark the passage of people traveling from being junior elders to senior elders, such as having a, a, an olive tree and a certain number of people, men carrying from the right hand side, 25, 24, 49 altogether, bringing the tree into a center to be actually burnt to its ashes. 
The men themselves are covered in ochre and white pigment. These are all highly important and very, very significant. They spend up to three months in a temporary village, singing and dancing, eating meat and so forth. But the crucial thing about this is that all people have a role. The whole of society does. And as this ceremony comes to a close, what it does is it opens up the possibility now for the next generation of young men to become warriors and then to enter into family life by becoming married and so forth. So this is the apogee of well-being and feeling prosperous because in a sense it's all coming together. Everyone has a place. It is essentially a shared sense of prosperity and well-being. Now you don't have to go to a tribal or indigenous people to see this. Um, for many years, Germany has been talking about well-being policy processes. In 2015, the German government was very clear that they wanted to reach out and find other ways to pursue economic, social and environmental goals. So they instigated a national dialogue to better understand what matters for people's well-being. So they took a period of six months, hosted over 200 national dialogue events um, in every region of Germany. At 50 of them, the Chancellor and Ministers were invited to participate, to engage in these discussions. And those who couldn't participate were invited to, pass, to come in on online or by returning a postcard that had been mailed to all residents. So they had thousands of people participating in this. And out of it came over 400 different topics and areas important for well-being. And through this consultation, people expressed a mix of values, of processes and outcomes as being important. Um, they had freedom, equity, uh, helpfulness, uh, important democratic processes such as civic engagement, political participation, and crucial outcomes for the functioning of the state, such as healthcare, education, and an unspoiled nature. What happened was these got put into three broad categories, our life, describing the dimensions of health, work, and so forth, our surroundings, covering the three dimensions of lives, you know, where people live, infrastructure and mobility, rural areas, and our country, which talks about where the country sits in relation to itself and internationally as well. Now, this is important because this exercise laid the foundations for not only policies, but also for communication, for trust to be built. And so what we saw through this was that there were trusted communities who were able to facilitate discussions, powerful questions were being asked, and when, and when discussing what matters for well-being, um, people were asking why, you know, why do we need this, why do we need that? So overall, there was a tremendous sense in which core values relating to well-being were identified. Now the next example is Ecuador. I mentioned before that they have something called buen vivir, um, means living well together. And it comes from a Spanish translation of sumac corse, a term used by the Quechua peoples in the Andes. And it was a way of describing uh, how people do things. And it's rooted in community, in the ecology and culture and spiritual connection to the land. It presents a vision of development um, which goes way beyond economic growth. And it focuses on the factors that determine the well-being, health, education, environmental protection, but most importantly, community participation. And what they were able to do was to successively create a vision. So they had this well-being vision, which, the, which they brought out in 2018. And in that, they were able to say, we want a society in which people can satisfy their needs, live and die worthily with social equality and justice, free of violence or discrimination, and achieving individual, social and natural harmony. The government expressed their well-being vision in 2018 and what they were able to do was to say we want a society in which people can satisfy their needs, live and die worthily with social equity and justice, free of violence or discrimination and achieving individual, social and natural harmony. So this was communicated through many media campaigns uh, with one commercial feature, for example, with an elderly lady declaring, finally, money does not make the difference in achieving dignified health. Health is a right for which they cannot charge money. So there were lots of these um, with musicians and people from ethnic groups. But the whole idea was that it was communicated in multiple ways 
so that the idea of a holistic concept of well-being was really brought through. My next example is really about um, how we measure. And Wales is really the choice I've made. Wales, in 2015, put forward um, a well-being vision of improving the way in which decisions are made across specified public bodies in Wales. We want Wales to become prosperous, resilient, healthier, more equal and globally responsible with a vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language. So this went to the core. And what the um, Welsh government required of all its ministers was to propose indicators to measure progress in their areas of responsibility. Now, a key principle for selecting indicators was effective communication. So it was not good enough just to have numbers. It was really important to engage with, engage with the public in pursuing the well-being goals. And they did that through not only being uh, transparent, but really employing both qualitative and quantitative methods to find the appropriate indicators that would resonate, but at the same time would pick up the kind of multidimensional aspects. So audiences were matter, mattered, but most crucially, um, whilst they were looking for that, uh, the, the existing sets of metrics, they also identified how they were going to talk to other internationally comparable indicators. So we have a whole basket of them, and it's worth just noting what they are, because measuring well-being can come through the Sustainable Development Goals, Social Progress Index, the Genuine Progress Index, OECD's Wellbeing Framework, Happy Planet Index, Eurostat's Quality of Life Indicators, the Wheel of Wellbeing, Sustainable Wellbeing Index, the Multidimensional Poverty Index, the Wales National Wellbeing Indicators, Thriving Places Index, New Zealand Wellbeing Indicators, the Gallup Wellbeing Index, Humankind Index, Iceland Wellbeing Indicators, Genuine Wealth Accounting. So there's no shortage of both metrics, indicators that one could actually use. But I think the, the real analysis coming from the community will help to determine which ones are the most appropriate. And in many cases, it might be that we try to blend some of those together. The next well, example I have is, is perhaps a bit of a surprise. It comes from the US and it comes from the 1990s. And the state government in, in Utah instigated a participatory process to look at policy design. And really, it was about promoting more inclusive and sustainable growth. Now, they faced a lot of resistance to begin with, but gradually people saw that they had to manage growth. And in particular, they wanted to see how different stakeholders who were rather skeptical could really become open to the idea of involving residents um, in an economic strategy, as opposed to thinking, well, we'll make the strategy in a top down and then we'll hand it over to the people. Well, they undertook a lot and lot, a lot of visioning, of discussions and so forth. And eventually, having done a big value survey, they came up with Envision Utah. And this initiative really helped them to motivate people to participate in surveys and meetings. And communities were really important in developing something called the Quality Growth Strategy. So after years of exhaustive involvement by the public, it was success successfully developed and widely supported. Um, there was a bit of a, a setback when at one point they were going to develop uh, a new transport system and it, it didn't really work. But very soon afterwards in 2000, as a result of awareness raising and public debate, actually the initiative, which was to, to reduce carbon emissions um, and all the way through to smarter land use, actually went through. So it was, it, this is what we were saying. It's an iterative process. You can't just simply do it once and then assume you have the mechanism for transformation. You have to keep coming back, aligning institutions, bringing stakeholders together. And this is absolutely key. So when you begin with a set of goals and you've discussed them with stakeholders and allocated roles, so to speak, it's very important that you continue to facilitate the multi-stakeholder processes and community discussions because Everybody has a legitimate role in this. Um, everyone has a role in instigating those changes. And that will change as the society itself begins to evolve. So mapping and remapping is very important. Now, let's go to New Zealand. Um, New Zealand had a, an interesting moment as it was thinking about well-being uh, when it decided to 
look at the trade-offs between environmental and social well-being goals, because they were particularly concerned in their transition to a zero-carbon economy, how it would affect the uh, employment and livelihoods of people working in the oil and gas sector. So they set up a just transition unit in May 2018 to foster a transition towards such a low emissions economy. They wanted it to be fair, equitable and inclusive. They built partnerships which had got objectives, you know, building an understanding of the pathways, identifying and creating new opportunities and new jobs, new skills that would come out of the transition, really to try and understand how the transition might impact different communities, and then how to make choices on the management of these impacts in a way that was just and inclusive. Now, the most important area was around Taranaki, and this is where a lot of the oil and gas activity was happening. So they created the transition lead group, and this group facilitated workshops around the region, looking at the special, through special events, different groups and how they would be affected. In the end, they came together in a summit in May 2019. They brought Kate Rayworth. Um, uh, she's a, a Wellbeing Economy Alliance ambassador. And following the finalization, they really began to understand that this transition pathway action plan was something which everybody had to participate in. And as a result, they have been able to manage trade-offs and the power dynamics to really develop effective strategies to foster the well-being economy. And as a result of that, they have become a member of the Wellbeing Economy Government Partnership. Now, the way that New Zealand tackled this, of course, was to have open and honest discussions about trade-offs, to openly discuss power relationships and, and really to look at power mappings and where are the potential barriers. So by making things a lot more open, by empowering and marginalised people in society, um, it, it was very, very clear that everybody could participate in the scenario planning. And what they were able to do then was to develop a causal logic, which really helped people add to it their, their narratives with pictures and infographics to really explain the causal logic. And in that way, it became embedded in society's uh, discussions around the whole transition. Now, in Iceland, we have um, a very interesting case here because here we could see that um, the idea that everything that, is, that makes life worthwhile is really shaped around well-being. Um, but they do see that gender equality is very important and it's been one of Iceland's primary goals in building the well-being economy. They wanted to see that gender equality was really there. And the interesting thing, of course, is that many of the well-being economies are led by women. Um, but as, as the Prime Minister said, as governments are slowly turning their focus from the raw GDP-driven measurements towards well-being criteria when judging success, what she wanted to see is that the campaign for women's equality in Iceland uh, really did demand action to liberate women from the kinds of social structures that had kept them, quote, down for centuries. Now, in order to achieve this goal, they recognised that they needed to understand the impacts of policies on gender. And so there's a, there's a really great set of um, indicators that have come forward that are really going to serve as the basis for the assessment that will demonstrate how real prosperity and quality, in life, quality of life in Iceland is moving forward, but where gender is really embedded. So they have gender budgeting. Um, they're thinking about uh, what this five-year fiscal plan will look like across the whole of the, the se all of the sectors. Um, and, and they really see that this is going to be um, a game changer in terms of delivering Iceland's well-being goals. So that's a, that's a kind of another, another take on this. So they have created a, a fantastic inventory of policy instruments. Um, they've looked at the external policy environment and constraints, and they've shown how communities have been able to adapt and align policies to their local context. And that's, that's the really critical thing. And what they've been doing is phasing out existing policies that constrain desirable behaviours. So again, looking again, iterating through, important. The next country we go to is Scotland. Scotland has really been at the forefront of the Wellbeing Economy Government's partnership um, with the First Minister, Nicola, uh, uh, setting out many different aspects of its meaning for Scottish communities. 
Now, these, were, these have been well articulated. There's TED Talks and various other things. Uh, there was the Wealth of Nations meeting last year. So there's enough written, but all around, it's about justice, restoration and regeneration of nature, about fairness and dignity, where everyone has enough to live on, um, and how these can be actually achieved. So although Scotland is a small country, it is poised to accelerate the change that's required by the well-being economy. And even with COVID, it seems that they have been able to preserve and keep a lot of the policy processes that have come through the co-creation and the testing and the lobbying by different groups across the country. So that's very impressive. So this idea of a shared ambition is now being um, also shared with other countries, New Zealand, Iceland, Wales and Finland, looking that looking at how they can learn from each other's um, performance, for example, under the COVID setting. Let's now take it down to the city level because there's exciting things happening there. Edmonton has adopted something called the Genuine Wellbeing Index. Um, it's a bit like a progress indicator and it was commissioned by the city in 2008. And what it's been able to do is help that city develop a 10-year, developed a 10-year strategic plan, the way ahead, um, where Edmonton has actually created uh, sustainability in terms of a quality of life and well-being and has enabled them, using this uh, well-being index, to track overall economic, social health and environmental well-being conditions. It's provided decision makers and citizens with a, with a really great overview of how the city is working. It's offered a context to guide sort of annual budgetary processes and it's really helped people keep track of municipal capital and operational spending. Um, but the fact that it regularly goes back out for community discussions and decision making is really part of its success. So publishing these assessments, letting everybody see them transparently, using sort of intervention of logic or theory of change in the policy design and making sure everyone understands that, why are we doing this and, and so on. So there's, there's many, many ways in which we can um, bring people in, but facilitating discussions around overall well-being does require a very strong evidence base. The next city is Porto Alegre in Brazil, and here we had the, the possibility through a couple of structures uh, where they have the system of popular citizen participation created in 2009, which includes a wide variety of tool, tools that connects policymakers um, directly with citizens, and then they sort of talk. So, for example, we have um, open participatory multi-year planning community meetings, which is very important. Um, we have participatory budgeting, where citizens sort of determine the priority policies and services for the neighbourhood. They've got sort of better neighbourhood projects. Um, they've decided how tax will be put on properties. Uh, There's sort of business engagement, the plenary of public services, policymakers out on the street. Every Saturday, the mayor, the vice mayor, the municipal secretaries go up and set up a street stall. Obviously not right now, but this is what they were doing to really open themselves up to hear what the citizens are saying. Um, the mayor goes to the station every Thursday during peak rush hour to meet with people, opens up a space for dialogue and so forth. They have an agora, uh, which is like um, a virtual tool, which allows people to have a weekly online dialogue on policy issues. So that's between the mayor and the population and the municipal secretaries. And then they have a house of councils. So many, many ways in which people can deliberate and feel empowered and have their voices heard. Very important to, to recognise that. So that inclusive series of mechanisms helps people to gather uh, people-centred stories. They, they kind of think about you know, what they're doing and how others can be encouraged to bring in accountability mechanisms, particularly around funding is very important. La Paz um, established Neighbourhoods of the Truth. So in 2005, they began an, an innovative programme and what the idea was here was to empower and improve the well-being of the very poorest urban communities. And it was really based on the idea of, uh, it came out of a law on popular participation, which really encourages people to get involved and to commit themselves to the development of their community. So they volunteer to be part of the neighbourhood community. Now, this is, you know, it's, it's very, very clear that um, neighbourhoods taking care of themselves still need to be connected together. So even when projects were finalised, 
um, and neighborhood commitments were then being worked out to ensure that there was sort of effective maintenance like you know recycling and cleaning and waste reduction and so on. These still needed to be connected to make sure that they really were driving forward poverty reduction, sanitation, education and so on. But at the, at the same time and in parallel, more than 100,000 people have been inspired by this to really bring on the other dimensions of well-being. So through the empowerment, different visions, different ideas about um, what the future should look like, the legitimacy of who takes forward the message, the adaptability, and ultimately seeing that the achievement of your own well-being um, is going to be driven by changes in the way that people produce and provide for one another. So these neighbourhoods of truth have really generated effective local action, not only by providing the tools and resources needed, but also by developing communication networks to support transparency and knowledge across the whole of the city. So that sort of brings me towards the end. And there are two just end points, really. One is that you need to evaluate policy impacts uh, around well-being. It's all very well having these um, policies, but because we are living in such a complex, interconnected and constantly changing world, no matter how visionary and strategic or evidence-based we are, we still need to evaluate. And today, what I can offer is that it's going to be through a process of trial and error, of adaptation and innovation. And only in that way will you find the right policy solutions that best align with your particular context, with the values and objectives. So this process of learning by doing is really about assessing improvements in all kinds of well-being, as well as reflecting and adapting policy design itself. So this iteration is about regularly assessing well-being, identifying best practices and lessons for improvement. Implementing policies, well, as Amina Mohammed says, we have our work cut out, of, cut out for us. But as she says, there is no doubt that together we can get to a world that leaves no one behind. Many governments face challenges when it comes to implementation. There's a huge gap between what was planned and what actually happens on the ground. But, you know, many of these challenges can be overcome by, in, by, in, by engaging with communities, engaging with local uh, communities. And so I really do see that the process of developing strategies and policies, whilst it might begin at some high level with a, with a vision, that vision needs to be developed, co-created, co co-produced, co-designed with communities, because then you're going to see the bottom up is driving the transformation in activities and behaviours that we need across all sectors of society. What the exact shape and form of the implementation might be is going to depend on context. And there are some processes that are worth considering, which is you know, empowering localised policy implementation and, of course, participatory monitoring of that implementation, getting people engaged. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, we're going to be launching the Wellbeing Economy Policy Design Guide later this week. Um, it has many of these ideas in there. It helps you to see how different parts of the world uh, have worked. But more importantly, it gives you real guidance about revisiting well-being visions and goals, considering how different policy instruments work, recognising that expertise comes in many forms, the unusual suspects, uh, as opposed to people who are always in the fora. We can identify and co-create new pilot projects and policies to test out ideas. Um, and it's worth spending time just really exploring how to develop policies that promote the kinds of behaviours that we actually want. In other words, those that may have been traditionally outside of the realm of, of sort of standard banking. I'm thinking here about um, generosity, environmental stewardship, cooperation, all these different ways. And then we also need to make special efforts towards those who are marginalised, because there's no point in leaving half of the population behind. So let's, let's really think about well-being as being not only the opening up of the space, the le legitimate inclusive space, but making absolutely sure that people feel empowered to enter that. So in conclusion, building prosperity and well-being, it does require a change of policy thinking, but it also requires a commitment to challenge our own internal barriers and addictions. So do we really need to save large amounts of money for a future that in any case is highly uncertain? Would it not be better to rely on the idea that with greater voice, communities can become self-sustaining 
and that resources are going to flow through society rather than being trapped by just a small number. You may think it's too idealistic, but as countries start to explore the impacts of COVID and what it means for society going forward, there is a chance to take a different pathway. And so, you know, I'm, I'm saying that in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, many governments have temporarily suspended parts of their economies to slow the spread of the disease. And as they come out and as they're thinking about it, well, we can see that there are changes that are possible. Three-day work weeks to lower environmental pressures, time banking to increase social inclusion. Um, maybe there's a resource cap and trade scheme to limit resource extraction, not just in carbon. Uh, green infant industry um, to 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 really uh, think about taxes and land value taxes, universal basic income, universal basic services. So there are many many things that we could consider. What I would say that is New Zealand has done a really great job and it has attracted international attention because it really produced the first well-being budget in uh, 2019. And it really underlines the fact that um, if you give New Zealanders more capabilities to enjoy a good well-being, then actually they will tackle long-term challenges as a country, <clears throat> like the mental health crisis, child poverty, they will be tackled because the strength of the communities is linked to the performance of the economy. So with those sort of uh, endpoints, let me just conclude by saying that um, given how well some countries have performed with the COVID-19 pandemic, what we need to really think about is how can we meaningfully use those lessons to really take a long, hard look at our economic model and see how we can combine prosperity and well-being economy and put those first, thinking how, how we can root those and consider the kind of leadership and prescience that we will need in terms of ensuring that is our way forward in terms of building pathways for our future. Thank you. And thank you very much for staying on. I hope you enjoyed this talk.